Uh, we're in the Gospel of Matthew, and I told you last week that uh, we were going to finish this week. Uh, I was misinformed. <laughs> I uh, thought that I would get through the two chapters because of the narrative, but as I re-examined that this week, I thought, there's no way I'm going to be able to do that. So we'll finish next week. We'll do chapter 27 this week and 28 next week. Uh, these last three chapters, 26, 27, and 28, are narrative and events more than they are teachings. Uh, and last week we looked at chapter 26 uh, through the plans of men versus the plan of God to see that even though uh, people have their plans, God works His will Sometimes using us, sometimes in spite of us, but never dependent upon us, which can be comforting uh, to know that uh, we are not, uh, we're not going to mess up God's, God's plan in that sense. Uh, so as we looked at that, we saw the uh, high priest condemning Jesus, and then Peter's denial of Jesus, uh, all according to uh, the scriptures. And that leads us to this week when we will look at the crucifixion. Now, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, Paul talks about the gospel and he says that Christ died according to the scriptures, was buried according to the scriptures, and rose according to the scriptures. So I've adapted that uh, with today's uh, message being called Crucified According to the Scriptures. We're going to pick up at Matthew... Uh, 27, and we're going to look at these. Again, we'll do the Q&A at the end. And uh, most of this is material you know real well, so I'm simply going to point out some things that I think go a little further in that context uh, for us. So, it says, um, verse 27, uh, when, when the morning came, so this is after the uh, deal with Caiaphas, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. Now this is important. The scriptures are predicting much of what's going on. And we could do a whole Bible study going back and looking where the prophets talk about these things. But I want you to remember that back in Matthew 16 verse 21... Jesus said to his disciples, the Son of Man is going to suffer at the hands of the chief priests. He's going to be killed and be and raised on the third day. Uh, and you recall Peter said, no, no, Lord, that's not going to happen. In other words, uh, he had his own idea about how this was supposed to be. And Jesus said, you don't care about the things of God. You care about the things of man. Get behind me, Satan, in that sense. Then in chapter 20 uh, of Matthew, verses um, 17 to 19, I want you to look at that because I want you to see how specific Jesus is and yet his disciples aren't really understanding. The scripture says they didn't until after the resurrection. But in chapter 20, uh, verse 17, it says this, as Jesus was about to go to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves. And on the way he told them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. 
And they will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. So we have seen that Jesus has been condemned. They want him dead. Now we see as they send him to Pilate, Pilate's a Gentile. He's being handed over to the Gentiles for that mocking. So as he told them, we're going to be uh, seeing this fulfilled. So we pick it up at verse 2. I mean verse 3. Uh, then when Judas, who had betrayed him, or handed him over, remember that's the, what the text says, saw that he had been condemned. So he saw that Jesus was condemned. I, it sounds like he didn't quite get that. This is why some people think that Judas thought that this would um, move forward Jesus' Messiah claims. We don't know what his motivation was. But when he sees that Jesus is condemned, he felt remorse terrible repentance feelings. Uh, Be careful of repentance feelings and not repentance behavior. Uh, So he returned the 30 pieces of silver, which would be repentance behavior, to the chief priests and elders. And he said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said to him, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. And the chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful for us to put it into the temple treasury, since this is the price of blood. And they conferred together with the money they bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, the field has been called the field of blood to this day. Uh, Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. Uh, They took 30 pieces of silver, the price of one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed. Now the prophets talk about these things in cryptic language. But there is a fulfillment of God's plan, even though what men are planning is something different. Now what's fascinating to me in this is the pattern for sin is to confess your sin, make restitution, and then go through the restoration. And where would you do that but at the temple? But these leaders were complicit in Judah's sin. And so when he comes and confesses and gives back the money... They want nothing to do with it. There is no place of repentance for him. He throws the money down and he goes away. And they're not even convicted themselves. They begin to decide what to do with the money. How do we do it lawfully? Condemning Jesus wasn't lawful. In other words, it's amazing how blindness, and we can be this blind, where we're doing Little details of righteousness here and terrible evil in this context. Now in this particular context, God is working um, and it's a little bit of the issue that we see with Joseph. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. It's just, I found it uh, ironic here to see that. Now they can't take the money and put it back in there. This is blood money. 
So they're going to do a good deed. They're going to do a mitzvah and buy a field so that, that strangers can be buried there, right? Uh, but it's called the field of blood. Uh, people know what's going on in that context. So this passage gives us that understanding. Then we get to Pilate himself. Verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. That's an agreement. I am the king of the Jews. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge, so that the governor was quite amazed. Now I want you to catch this. Pilate says, they're accusing you of being the king of the Jews. Are you the king of the Jews? I am. Then they're accusing him that he's going to destroy the temple. He's going to rebuild it. He's told people uh, you know, not to uh, be loyal to Caesar. They're all this stuff. They're piling on thick, right? And Jesus responds to none of it. This is amazing to Pilate because most of the time, if you get accused of things, you're doing everything you can do to defend yourself. The reality is Pilate sees in this, this lack of defensiveness. Yes, I am the king of the Jews. We read in other accounts, my kingdom is not of this world. So then you're a king. But it's not of this world or my servants would fight. So he's not a threat to, to the Roman government in that sense. So that's going to lead us to this next section where we run into, again, another little irony. So the scripture says, now at the feast, this feast is Passover. Pesach is a happening. Remember, they didn't want to catch Jesus during the feast, and yet that's exactly God's plan. Uh, it was the governor's custom to release for the people one prisoner whom they wanted. Now, what is this about? Probably it's related to what is the essence of Jewish understanding of Passover. We think of Passover in terms of the Passover lamb and the, the removal of Egypt, but we see it through the lenses of the Last Supper and salvation in that spiritual sense. They see it as freedom. It's about freedom. We were slaves and we were released from that slavery. And so the idea of somebody who's imprisoned being released is clearly an, an image of the, uh, the Passover, the Pesach in that sense. Now what's interesting here is in this context, it says, um, at that time they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Now, Barabbas is the name we do, but if you say it more the way the Hebrew would be, Bar-Abbas, you begin to go, wait a minute, I know what this means. Son of the Father, that's his name. He's a notorious evil person, but his name is Son of the Father. Okay. So the people gathered together and Pilate says... Whom do you want me to release to you, the Son of the Father, 
or salvation, Jesus' name is Yeshua, salvation, who is called Messiah. For he knew that because of envy they had handed Jesus over to him. So he knows this. The leaders want this guy dead. But the people know the character of this Barabbas. And they know the character of this Yeshua. Because it's not been long, uh, just a few days, since he came in and they were all singing Hosanna, right? So I think Pilate's assumption is the people, the leaders may want him dead, but the people will go for him. And also, verse 19, this is really interesting. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. So Pilate's got every reason in the world to let Jesus go. He hasn't done anything. He's not really a threat. It's just these leaders that want him. It's Passover. I can release him. The people will rejoice. I kind of can stick it to the leaders of the temple and I'll be fine. And then his wife says, man, you better not do anything. I had a terrible dream about that guy. He's righteous. Okay. Verse 20. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. The governor said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said, then what should I do with Jesus, who is called Messiah? And they began to shout, crucify him. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him. Now, I grew up in the 60s. I'm very familiar with demonstrations. And in recent times, you have seen a lot of demonstrations. And you know how this goes. This is not about being reasonable. It's a bunch of people with signs and a bunch of people with slogans. And basically they're saying, Hey, hey, ho, ho, Jesus has got to go. Right? That's what's going on. And you just keep doing it. And you just keep doing it. And more keep shouting. And everybody gets into it. And you really have a stampede more than a revival. And that's what's going on. They have turned this crowd into a screaming group. Many of them probably not knowing what's going on. They may not even know who was released and who's not released. They're simply yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And as a result then, the governor is going to act. When Pilate saw, verse 24, when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, Okay, this is going to get out of hand. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. So he brings out water. He washes his hands. He says, this man's blood is not on my hands. You can do with him what you want. And the people said, his blood shall be on us and on our children. Now that verse has been used historically to blame the Jews for the death of Jesus. It's a fascinating statement. I want to suggest something to you. 
Because this statement, His blood be upon us and our children, can be seen in two different contexts. The context that is normally given is the context that his, the guilt of His death is on us and on our children. But you and I know what's really going on here. The great high priest is offering himself up as a sacrifice. Let me get to my notes. And there is a sense in which his blood will be upon us and our children in the sense of the atonement. Now you know at the atonement there are two goats. One that goes unto the Lord and one that is drawn out. But the sins of the people are confessed over both of them. And Christian theology sees one as Jesus and the other one as Jesus as he atones and takes away the sin. But I see it a little different. I see it as one being the atonement and for those who don't accept the atonement, they bear their own sins depart from me to the place prepared for the devil, I never knew you. And that that part has not yet been fulfilled yet. So, I'm going to suggest that there is an issue here that should not lead us into this uh, anti-Semitic rhetoric about the Jews killing uh, Jesus. uh, Because the reality is, uh, Jesus isn't killed by anyone. So, let me uh, let me remind you of a text, and I've got it here. Uh, I'm going to talk about it when we get to the actual death, but I'm going to get back to this point because I think it's a really important point. The blood of Jesus can be on you in one of two ways. His death is because of our sin. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it becomes the atonement for us. Or if you reject that atonement, you become responsible for your own sins and bear that into eternity. So, uh, be careful of this attribution of the death of Jesus to the Jews. Uh, uh, If you want the ultimate uh, person who started this, it was Adam. As in Adam we all die, so in Christ we shall all be made alive. There's a bigger picture here, and this kind of uh, treating groups as if they're worse than other groups uh, is seriously a problem. So, we're going to pick it up at uh, uh, 27. Uh, They release Barabbas in verse 26, and having Jesus scourged, they hand him over to be crucified. Now, I want you to remember that Jesus said, I'll be handed over to be crucified, but also to be mocked by the Gentiles. And we have that in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed on his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spat on him, took a reed and began to beat him on the head. 
And after they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him, put his own garments back on him, and led him away to crucify him. That is just unbelievable. In the same way that he was treated by the priests, hitting him, prophesy, which one of us hit you? So here he's being mocked. He's being mocked as the king of the Jews, which is who he is. Right? So it says, as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, and they pressed him into service to bear his cross. The tradition, in Christian tradition, is that Jesus fell three times under the weight of the cross, and finally Simon was pressed into service. We don't, we don't know that for certain, um, but the reality is that at some point, either at the beginning or during, Jesus is not able to bear that cross beam, and so he is... Uh, he's relieved of that. Probably with all of these beatings, uh, it was it was difficult for him to make the the, uh, the the journey there. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. When Jesus sees that this is uh, going to deaden his uh, pain and and his mind with the wine. He uh, refuses it. They crucified him, dividing up his garments, among them casting lots, uh, also found in the scriptures. All of these things are points that the prophets have, have told. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which is read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. I want you to notice the focus of Matthew. Everything is about Jesus as King of the Jews. Whether rightly stated, whether stated in mocking, whatever it is, it's clear that this is the, the, the message. And at that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads. They said, you're going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself if you are the Son of of God, come down from the cross. Again, they have misinformation. He didn't say that. And if he does what they say, he won't do the mission that he's here for. The, The humans never seem to see God's plan, even when we have it given directly to us. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God, let God rescue him, if he delights in him, for he said, I am the son of God. And so they were, uh, the robbers were doing this as well. Now in the sixth hour, darkness fell over the land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it said, this man is calling Elijah. Again, they're missing the whole point. They think he's calling Elijah. He's saying, my God, my God. I'm sure it was in a groaning uh, voice. But they didn't understand. Immediately, one of them takes a sponge, fills it with sour wine, puts it on the uh, reed, and gave it to him to drink. This is the cup that he will drink, that bitterness of judgment. And the rest are going, hey, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, 
and yielded up his spirit. I want you to look at verse 50. From verse 50 to 56 is some critical stuff that I want to look at. I've just read that other part. You're familiar with it. But Matthew does something in this chapter and in the next chapter that I find fascinating. He configures the text in such a way that the crucifixion and the resurrection are intertwined in a way they can't be pulled apart. You can't separate the crucifixion and the resurrection as if they're separate events. They become a single event in Matthew's writings in both this chapter and the next chapter. That's why I wanted to put them together, but I couldn't get there uh, with the timing. So I'll bring this up again next week. Um, So it says in verse 50, uh, he gave up his life. And then it says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, the tombs were opened, and many of the saints who had been fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tomb after his resurrection, they entered into the holy city and appeared to many. And the centurion and those who were with keeping guard over Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. And many women were looking from a distance, those who followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Now, I want to look at these things uh, In a little more depth. So verse 50 says that Jesus dismissed his spirit. This word is used when somebody puts away their wife. It's a word used to make a determination of separation. Jesus doesn't just run out of gas and give up the spirit. Jesus doesn't have somebody take his life from him. He dismisses his spirit. And I want you to know what's going on there. So to do that, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, verse 14. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold, talking of us. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice. And there will be one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Very important to understand, the one who's responsible for the death of Jesus is God the Father and Jesus. No human being could take his life. And the stupidity and evil that's been done in blaming people for that is unbelievable. But it's powerful. Even at that moment, Jesus is in full control of the authority that the Father has given him. 
in full trust that what his father has told him will happen. He can lay down his life and he can take it up again. Jesus dismissed his spirit. Then the scripture tells us that there was an earthquake that split rocks and that the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Now we know from Hebrews chapter 9 that the high priest would enter in to the to the Holy of Holies through that veil. And the scripture says that the veil was there to show that the way into the holy place had not yet been revealed. So there is a revelation of this new covenant that is going to happen through Jesus' ministry as high priest. But that's not going to happen completely until the ascension. And then Pentecost when the Spirit comes. So you can see that what Matthew is doing is he's waving these things together because Jesus is not going to enter into that temple. That temple didn't even have an Ark of the Covenant. When that veil ripped open, there's nothing behind it. But there is in the true temple where he will ascend. After the resurrection, Matthew tells us, tombs were opened and many holy ones who had died were raised in inner Jerusalem and appeared to many. Now that had to be something. After the resurrection, Uncle Mordecai comes showing up. Right? And you knew he was exotic. You knew he was righteous. But here he is, resurrected. Now there's two options. He could have been resurrected like Lazarus. In other words, he's simply raised from the dead. And he will have to die again. Or, he's raised like Christ. And that seems to be Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians when he says, each person is raised in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, this handful of firstfruits, not just Jesus, but others risen who would show themselves because they had to be seen. It's way before the Lord. And perhaps then they ascend uh, in some sense uh, when Jesus does as well. We don't have any information in there. So we either got people raised like Lazarus who die again. I would think the book of Acts would say something about those people. So I suspect that the latter is the, is the case there. Um, fascinating stuff. Uh, they were resurrected like Jesus. Uh, not raised like Lazarus. Now, I have a question about this next one. So I'm not saying thus says the Lord. But it's a... Interesting thing to me. Every movie I've seen, and probably every one you've seen, when Jesus dies, there's a centurion standing by the cross. Right? And uh, when they pierce his side, and there's an earthquake, uh, then he says, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now that's possible that that's what's going on here. But there's a convoluted conversation going on with Matthew. And a lot of what he's talking about is he has just said that these people rise from the dead at the resurrection. And somebody who's keeping guard. Well, who's keeping guard? So I want you to look at uh, the very end of this text. Verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple. And he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. He laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. 
And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. He says, now on the next day, the day after the preparation, that's the preparation for the Passover, so we're now on the first day of unleavened bread, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. We know from one of the Gospels that they would gather with Pilate, but they wouldn't go into his, into his house. They stayed outside because they didn't want to become unclean so they could eat the Passover that night. Okay, Remember the two nights of eating. So the idea here is they're still trying to be as righteous as they can towards the law and they're, uh, they were in cahoots with Pilate to have Jesus crucified. And so it says that they, uh, they said, Sir, we remember when he was still alive, that the deceiver said, after three days I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples will come and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go and make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure along with the guard, They set a seal on the stone. Now, there's a lot of debate among scholars as to who this guard is. Is Pilate saying to them, you have your own guard, the Sanhedrin, your Jewish guard. You can go ahead and set the guard and make it as secure as you want. That's possible, but it doesn't make sense that that guard would be worried that the Romans would hear about them falling asleep Because they're not really under Rome. So the other option is this is a Roman guard. Pilate said, you have the guard. Make it as secure as you want. And the centurion who's standing there when the earthquake happens and the stone rolls away is then says, truly this is the Son of God. Okay, Because these things are written in a convoluted way. Hard to know what the exact sequencing is. Either way it's likely that somebody observing these things, Matthew says these things, and he lists all of those, those things made that centurion, wherever he was, in whatever context he was, to say, this is the Son of God. Okay? I'm not sure an earthquake happening when somebody died is enough to make somebody say that. So I suspect that there may be more to this convoluted wording that, that, uh, that Matthew gives us. So what we have here is I'm out of time and we're at the grave, but there is no resurrection. Though Matthew has already introduced the resurrection to give us all of that stuff. And now in the very beginning of chapter 28, he's going to do the same thing when the women come to the tomb. And then he's going to back up to the to the actual resurrection, but we'll have to wait till next week uh, to do that. So, we're going to leave it with Jesus having died according to the scriptures, and being buried according to the scriptures, and next week we'll visit the resurrection, the empty tomb, and the report of the guards, and the great commission, and we will complete our discussion of Matthew. Let's pray.